Support for this WXAV podcast is being provided by Bookies, new and used books. Located at 10324 Southwestern Avenue in Chicago, Bookies specializes in new and used books. Their selection includes new releases, bestsellers, and books that are out of print. For more information, please visit their website at bookieschicago.com. You can also find them on Facebook by searching Bookies Chicago or call them at 773-239-1110. Support for WXAV 88.3 FM is being provided by the Northwest Community Credit Union. If you live or work in Lake, Will, or suburban Cook Counties, you can become a member of the Northwest Community Credit Union. For 80 years, the credit union has offered a comprehensive roster of financial products and services to help their members meet their financial goals. For more information on becoming a member, please visit their website at nwccu.com. You can also call them at 847-647-1030 or stop in at the Credit Union House on the St. Xavier campus across from the Graham School of Management. This podcast is being brought to you by WXAV 88.3 FM and WXAV.com. WXAV, bringing the best podcasts to you. Hi, I'm Peter Creighton. And welcome to our third and concluding conversation about the greatest fictional detective of all time, Sherlock Holmes. Over these past few conversations, I've been utterly surprised by the amount of information I did not know about Sherlock Holmes and its creator, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. I think what surprised me the most was just how much Conan Doyle's creation has influenced modern fandom. From Doctor Who to DC and Marvel, Holmes' shadow looms largely over all of them. Then by a crazy stroke of luck, I was in a bookshop and came across a book that literally covers this very topic. Written by Zach Dundas, The Great Detective, The Amazing Rise and Immortal Life of Sherlock Holmes explores the timeline of The Great Detective and explains why Holmes is just as popular today as he was when he was first published in The Strand Magazine in 1887. I reached out to Zach to ask him about his book, Holmes' impact on modern fandom, and much more. Here now, my conversation with Zach Dundas. My name is Zach Dundas. I'm the author of The Great Detective, uh, a book about the history of Sherlock Holmes and all of his many manifestations in our culture. And uh, Zach, it's a pleasure to be speaking with you today. It's a great book. I actually just finished reading The Great Detective uh, about a month ago, and it was incredible everything I learned about The Great Detective, um, Sherlock Holmes, from reading your book. I like to kind of just start at the beginning. Can you just kind of uh, recount how you first discovered Sherlock Holmes? Sure. Well, I, like a lot of people who are lifelong fans of the character, um, first discovered him, I guess I should say, maybe it is a more appropriate pronoun. Um, it can be hard to tell with Sherlock Holmes whether you're talking about a real person or not, which is one of the intriguing things. Uh, but when I was, uh, you know, about 12 and, and becoming a more adventurous reader, uh, I encountered uh, some somewhat watered down for kids versions of Arthur Conan Doyle's short stories. And although I'd been, of course, familiar with Sherlock Holmes as a sort of legend or archetype uh, in the culture before that, uh, I read those stories, devoured them, and really got uh, engaged with uh, the character in a pretty deep way over the next few years between the ages of about 12 and 15. I, I, was, uh, I, was, pretty, I was in pretty deep. 
And then since then, you know, as life has gone on, I have certainly continued to be very interested in the character and have kind of come back around to those stories a few times um, in my life and discovered new and different things with each read, I guess I would say, at different ages. That's fantastic. And you really do a great job of recounting it in your book. You talked about uh, starting your own um, society, if you will, your own Sherlock Holmes society for for Mm -hmm. teenagers and kids in that. Um, which is really awesome. So for you, though, your love of, of the character came from reading the short story. So it wasn't television or the radio dramas. It, it was the actual stories themselves The Conan Doyle wrote that caused you to fall in love with the character. Correct. Um, and I would say that there are a lot of different ways to get into Sherlock, obviously. Um, and that's one of the reasons I wrote the book, in fact, is because this character has gone through so many different incarnations and so many different media over the last 100 and whatever it is, 30 years or so. There are really a lot of different ways to encounter and come to love the character and his world. But for me, it was the Conan Doyle stories uh, initially. And that that's a great segue because I wanted to talk about how you were inspired to, to write about Sherlock Holmes because... The character's been around for 130 years. There's tons of great literature written about him and Conan Doyle. But your book has a really unique perspective with uh, how you wrote it and how you approached it. Can you talk a little bit about how you approached uh, writing The Great Detective and then um, just like how you went about researching the book then? Sure. I was initially inspired to take this on as a book. Actually, oddly enough, while watching a World Series game, and it, it was the year that the Robert Downey Jr. Sherlock Holmes movie debuted. And I remember watching baseball games, and I hadn't really been aware of that movie. I, I, it wasn't really, it wasn't really on my radar. I didn't didn't really know that it was coming. And I remember that an ad for the movie appeared on the placard behind the batter. And I, I, I was sort of puzzled as to why the name Sherlock Holmes was being displayed during a Major League Baseball game. And, uh, you know, of course, I quickly found out that this movie was coming. And, uh, you know, for those who have had the pleasure or the displeasure or however you want to think of it, those are the movies with Robert Downey Jr. as Sherlock Holmes and Jude Law as Dr. Watson. Uh, and it struck me as I learned more about that production and the, the the take on the character that it was attempting to put forward, how many times and in how many different ways Sherlock Holmes has been reinvented over more than a century. And it was one of those moments where, you know, I'm, a, I'm an author, I'd written one book, I was kind of looking for another book idea, and it was one of those moments where something just seemed so believingly obvious all of a sudden, like, well, duh, I've got to do a book on Sherlock Holmes, and I've got to do a book about how and why this one character has repeatedly been resurrected generation after generation in every new medium that comes along. Sherlock Holmes reappears in a slightly altered, sometimes mutated way that Conan Doyle may or may not recognize as his own. And so that was the germ of the idea. I thought, well, I'm going to do a book about the entire history of Sherlock Holmes in in popular culture 
And that is more or less what I did, although it, in the end it ended up being uh, maybe more idiosyncratic and personal than any kind of formal history. Uh, I did, of course, do a lot of research into the, all the different moments that Sherlock Holmes has had and all of the many people who are, well, I, I shouldn't say I researched all of them, but I researched many of the people who have along the way played key roles in the reinvention of the character. And it, it's really remarkable. And one thing that really struck me as I was writing the book, the degree to which Sherlock Holmes is the work of so many different people. Uh, Conan Doyle invented the character, got it all started, but the Sherlock Holmes we know today and the Sherlock Holmes that, Sherlock Holmes that we have known over the last hundred years is really a big collaboration among people who have contributed different things to the myth along the way. And that's really cool uh, what, what you said right there because you really touch on that on the book. You talk about Conan Doyle with just giving us enough details about Sherlock Holmes and about the world that Sherlock Holmes is is in that it kind of allows the reader to fill in the fill in the blanks, if you will. Would you say that's been one of the reasons why this character has lasted so long is because so many people can put their fingerprints on it because you have the Basil Rathbone Sherlock Holmes and then you have the Benedict Cumberbatch Sherlock Holmes, same name, two totally different characters. Yeah, it is very intriguing, and that's one thing that I tried to capture in the book, but it's, it's almost so enigmatic in a way. It's hard to put into words, but I do think... I do think that the fact that Conan Doyle left a lot to the imagination has been key. You know, people who are into Sherlock Holmes spend a lot of time thinking about characters like Professor Moriarty or Irene Adler. And there are entire cycles of novels and movies and uh, all kinds of creative material out in the world about both of those characters. You know, there's a series of novels, at least one, about Irene Adler. Professor Moriarty gets reinvented every time a new Sherlock Holmes series or play or anything is created. A new Professor Moriarty is, is invented to be the supervillain. And when you go back to the Conan Doyle stories, you read about what you read what he wrote about those characters, and there's hardly anything to it, really. I mean, Irene Adler is in one story for a few pages and has a few lines of dialogue, and yet she has become a huge part of the myth of the character. Likewise, Professor Moriarty kind of comes out of nowhere all of a sudden in one story where Conan Doyle frankly just wants to invent a reason to kill off Sherlock Holmes. Figures in a couple of others, but, but, but really only as a sort of secondary force. And yet, you can't really imagine the world of Sherlock Holmes without Professor Moriarty, and a lot has gone into imagining what Moriarty was all about, and who he really was, who she really was, and, you know. The, the reinvention of the characters and the whole milieu and world is really encouraged by the fact that Conan Doyle left so much out there to be thought about, reconfigured, reimagined. And I think that the reason that the Cumberbatch series works and other series that have taken Holmes out of the Victorian era, like the Basil Rathbone movies, many of them were not set in the Victorian era. They were set in the 30s or 40s. The reason that they work is that those characters are all malleable enough that they can remain recognizably themselves. You can always 
pick Sherlock Holmes out of the crowd, no matter what time period you're portraying, and yet they can they can move, they can be transported in time, and yet you know they still carry some sort of essence of the Victorian era with them wherever they go. So it, it's 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 really it's really when you think about it, it's really a strange piece of work overall. And and one thing that I got more and more intrigued by as I worked on the book is just how odd the whole thing is um, that this you know character from a you know a couple dozen detective stories written more than a century ago for the most part has had this incredibly vivid afterlife is really one of the things that I wanted to dig into the most. Yeah, and you you really raised a, an interesting point there um, when you were talking about like Professor uh, Moriarty in that, in that it's like Batman and the Joker. You can't yeah. think of one without the other. And right. it just kind of like popped in my head, almost like, would you almost say the world of Sherlock Holmes, quote unquote, is the, like the first real example of like modern day... I don't want to say superheroes, but I can't think of another genre to describe it to. But, I mean, it's this, like, world building with this connected universe and this group of rogues. And you have your heroes and and all these supporting characters. And I just think of Iron Man and the Avengers. Um, do you almost see Sherlock Holmes as, like, a precursor to all of this? I absolutely do. But what is interesting about it from my point of view, is that in contrast to the Marvel universe or the DC universe or a lot of um, pop cultural continuums that we now know, Doctor Who or, you know, any of the, I mean, pick a, pick a major franchise character, Star Trek, anything like that, the Sherlock Holmes stories were became what they became almost by accident. I mean, Conan Doyle didn't really intend any of that. Uh, and his whole way of writing the stories was actually somewhat chaotic, not very well planned, honestly, and the stories are riddled with continuity errors. You know, just the fact that he never brought Professor Moriarty or any of the other very memorable secondary characters back for another round. You know, I mean, Batman and the Joker fight kind of perpetually, Right? Yeah. Like there's all the Joker's always coming back around and characters can, characters can die and come back to life. I mean, you know, they that sort of fictional universe is the creation of a very calculated business plan in some ways, um, which is not a, which is not, by the way, a criticism. I think that that's, you know, completely a valid form of culture at this point. But Conan Doyle wasn't doing that. I mean, he, he sort of created this prototype almost by accident that is exactly what you described. It is sort of the first connected superhero universe, but he didn't do the connections very well. So it's kind of left for, to, to everybody else to figure it out. And then the creation of the great game started with fans trying to solve these continuity errors and seeing Sherlock Holmes as a, as a real human and help carry this character over for another 130 years. It's like a happy accident almost. Yeah, it really is. I mean, you know, Conan Doyle, you know, he was a very, very careful writer in some ways, but extremely careless in others, but really didn't have this in mind. I mean, this was not his plan. Um, yeah. And, and, uh, and I don't, I think he would actually, if he could come back, from the beyond and see what the character has become over the subsequent century, 
he's been dead for almost 100 years. I think he'd be delighted, but I think he would be extremely puzzled, um, shocked almost by the the degree to which people have taken what he created and, and run with it on their own. Probably a little annoyed, too, because he just always wanted to get away from the shadow of Holmes, but it always kept drawing him back in, uh, especially when he needed money and everything. But I want to kind of change directions for a moment with you, Zach. This is probably a little bit more of a personal question, but do you think your love of the Sherlock Holmes character and the stories kind of served as an inspiration for you in becoming a writer? Uh, it definitely did. I mean, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, the just on one front, the, the example, having the example of Conan Doyle as a writer was very inspirational to me as a younger person and realizing that this was a profession that could be followed. Obviously, there's innumerable ways that you could learn that, but that's, this is the specific way that I learned it. And I think, I, I mean, that's very specific and concrete, and I can definitely say that reading the Sherlock Holmes stories and getting to know them at a formative age inspired me to want to be a writer. I can, I can say that for sure. And I think that in a more sort of, in a less kind of concrete way, I think that Sherlock Holmes' whole personality is inspiring to a creative person because he himself is this kind of weird bohemian artist who yet somehow makes a living off of his strange talents. I think that sort of makes him the prototypical freelance artist and inspiring in that way too. That's a little bit less direct than saying, oh yes, I read these stories and I, I loved the writing and I wanted to be a writer too, which is also true. But I, I think that, that uh, Sherlock Holmes is a strange kind of role model. Uh, it's probably not a great idea to try to live like him, but <laughs> I think some of, the, some of the philosophy that he embodies uh, definitely uh, serves as a sort of in, inspiration to someone who wants to uh, live by their wits, I guess you would say. I've never thought of it like that, and now hearing it, it just makes complete and utter sense, and I absolutely love that, that perspective of Holmes and everything. That's really incredible, Zach. I got a couple of just general fun questions for you uh, before we wrap it up. Favorite Holmes story? That is the question, and that's a tricky one because um, I, 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 I like a lot in many different ways. I actually, in the book, in the appendix, I think I put together a list of the 20, what I consider the 20 essential of the 60 stories. Uh, if I had to pick one. Uh, the Sign of Four, which is the second novel, is probably the greatest piece of literary art in among the 60 stories, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. um, it's this really strange, intense, somewhat surreal, uh, impressionistic, moody bit of weirdness with lots of very complicated uh, social and political undertones and overtones and some fantastic individual set piece scenes and some of the most famous episodes from the original stories are in that novel. Um, Does it's a really well con well constructed novel as well, which the other three novels actually there's three there's four novels and fifty six stories. The other three novels all have fairly profound technical problems. Um, <laughs> the sign of four doesn't really. Uh, it's a much more integral, kind of well-pulled-off piece of work than the, than the other three novels. 
Sign of Four's, uh, that's the one with the um, the boat chase, right? Yes, the yes. boat chase. Um, there's a there's a boat chase, which is the climax of the of the story. Uh, there's a very memorable passage in which Holmes and Watson and a bloodhound, Toby the bloodhound. Yes, Toby. Yeah. To track. Yeah, they try to track their quarry across London by night, and there's some of the most evocative, sort of like what you think of when you think of Sherlock Holmes's London. The descriptions of the fog and the, um, you know, the just kind of moody atmosphere, the gaslights, the the sort of gaudy crowds of Victorian London. That is really embodied in that book, almost more than any of the others. There are certainly really great glimpses of that in many of the other stories, but that's the book that I feel like kind of brings all of that dimension of the character together. The sort of atmosphere and intensity that that book achieves is, is pretty key to the whole, the whole character's formation, I think. But the character changed a lot over time. I mean, Conan Doyle was writing these stories over a period of about 40 years. And so, well, in the sign of four Holmes is definitely a weirdo artist who's, you know, shooting cocaine and reading poetry and, you know, just basically acting like a, like a bohemian weirdo. That those dimensions of the character kind of, fade out a little bit over time and he becomes much more uh, much more like the super detective figure that is often w- how he's portrayed. Yeah. Um, that's another thing that's interesting. I mean, I'm digressing a lot to your question, but the uh, another interesting thing about the portrayal of the characters in the stories is how multidimensional it is and how it, it does change over time and the portrayal of Watson and Holmes' relationship changes over time. Uh, and so you have in the end, when you get all when you assess all 60 of them together, you have this fairly remarkable riff on these two characters that really explores a lot of different aspects of them. Over the course of the 60 stories, you find everything from like spy stories to science fiction, to straight out hard boiled mystery to romance. I mean, there's just a lot of different modes that are wrapped up in those 60 stories. And that I also found really striking as I wrote the book, actually, it was the first time this this actually hit me, is how many different genres of fiction Conan Doyle squeezed into that one series of 60 stories. Yeah, he really did. I mean, when I was reading the book, that jumped out at me too, but you're right, you have, um, oh, what's the one with the guy where he's leaping and he's jumping? You mentioned it in the book. I'm totally blanking on the short story name. He, he's like experimenting on himself with the animal. Oh, yeah. The, yeah. Um, it's the adventure of the creeping man. Creepy man, yeah. Um, yeah, and... Uh, Oh my God, I think that's right. There are two stories with very similar names, and I sometimes have been known to confuse them. Anyway, yes, there is a science fiction story in which a man is experimenting himself with, uh, with a youth, youth reviving serum derived from monkey testicles. And, and <laughs> so you get weird stuff like that, and uh, a couple of really great espionage stories, really good ones, some kind of white collar crime. The stockbroker's clerk is almost like a like a David Mamet play. It's kind of like a white collar scam plot. You got even you even got some western. More even um, sequences. <laughs> uh, you have a study in Scarlet or um, um, yeah, Death in the Valley. Scarlet. Those are very western stories too. Yeah, they, those those are those are definitely wild west tales. And some of the short stories uh, have episodes that are set either in America or in Australia that have that kind of frontier 
quality. So they, so there's everything from that to high society, Tory and London intrigue. Um, you know, you have prime ministers showing up in Baker Street, but you also have, you know, all walks of life and all all um, sort of branches of society represented in the stories, and that and that is one of their real charms and fascinations to this day. Then we're going to really change modes very quickly. You have a new podcast series that you're currently working on and everything. Can you talk a little bit about your new project? Yes, absolutely. It's interesting because, you know, one thing leads to another, right? And so uh, I'm currently developing a podcast along with three collaborators. Um, I grew up in Montana, and uh, although I live in Portland, Oregon now, I still have strong roots and connections in Montana. And one thing that I was contemplating as I wrote The Great Detective was the evolution of crime fiction as a genre. And the, the major development that happened after the Sherlock Holmes stories sort of ran their course is that the hard-boiled or private eye version of the genre kind of came to the fore in the United States. Dashiell Hammett, Raymond Chandler, that whole school of writing. And interestingly, Dashiell Hammett's first novel, Red Harvest, which is arguably the first artistically significant private eye novel, has its origins in a bunch of real-world events that happened in Montana, in our, in my home state. Oh wow! And the home, and the home state of the three people I'm working with. One of them is my brother. And so our podcast will explore the the first season of the podcast is slated to explore the real world events that inspired Red Harvest. In part, I mean, there's also a lot more to it because uh, what we're digging into has a lot of political and social ramifications. The working title of the podcast is Death in the West. We are uh, about to launch our website and uh, some trailer material that uh, will give people some flavor of what uh, we're up to. It is an examination of the murder, unsolved murder, of a man named Frank Little in Butte, Montana in 1917. Frank Little was a union organizer who came to Butte, which was the um, world's preeminent copper mining city, at the height of a strike in 1917 and was done in by people unknown, as yet unknown. Uh, so we're going to look into the somewhat incredible facts of this unsolved case and the larger social and cultural milieu that it came out of. But part of the story is the fact that uh, Dashiell Hammett, who was working as a Pinkerton detective at around the time that these events transpired, did take inspiration from uh, a lot of real-world happenings in Montana, including this murder, when he wrote Red Harvest and, and began, really, you could say, began the evolution of the private eye in American literature. That's a long answer to your question. Anyway, the way that I got into the project was through The Great Detective and thinking about what might come next and uh, examining what, might, what the best way to tell the story behind Red Harvest might be. Uh, and, you know, podcasts are new to me as far as a, a medium to work in. So that's very exciting. We've already gotten some great interviews and uh, field recordings that make me pretty excited about the possibilities. Uh, we're at kind of an early stage, but we are aiming to launch by the end of the year. Uh, Zach was very kind enough. He actually sent me some of the uh, material that he's recorded thus far. And I have to tell you, it sounds incredible. And this is going to be a can't miss podcast. It's going to be something really special. <laughs> 
Um, so definitely be on the lookout to uh, to check that out. Zach, if people want to follow you on social media or if you have a website, where can they go and check you out at? Uh, my active social media is Instagram, and it's just at Zach Dundas. And uh, that is probably my most uh, my most active channel at this point. Death in the West also has an Instagram channel, which is at Death in the West Pod. Um, and Death in the West Pod.com will be launching shortly. There's a placeholder site up now where people can get a look at our branding. Um, there'll be content live soon. So be on the lookout for that. Uh, Zach Dundas, thank you so much for joining me today. I got one final question for you, and that is. If you had to sum up Arthur Conan Doyle's impact on literature, what would it be? Well, it's interesting. It's not anything he planned. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You know, he was really a phenomenal writer, and a lot of what he wrote is very good outside of the Sherlock Holmes stories. Uh, But he's also incredibly prolific. I mean, he turned out book after book after book, story after story, and some of it's not so wonderful. His overall output pretty mixed bag. It's huge, vast volume of writing in every genre you can imagine. I think that his legacy, as it has come down, you know, almost a century after his death, is that he was the originator of this great collaborative project that we know as Sherlock Holmes, and in some ways showed the way to create a character that's both indelible and also endlessly reinventable and that's you know when you think about it there are a lot of authors and other creators trying to do exactly the same thing now all the time uh he launched the first franchise in a way he didn't really mean to but he did (laughs) (laughs) so so and you think about how important that concept is to culture as it stands now uh when everything is attempting to become a franchise that's a pretty remarkable legacy. Yeah, it is. I think we all have a, a small debt to pay for uh, Conan Doyle and the entertainment that we've either directly or indirectly consumed uh, from him. Zach uh, Dundas, author of The Great Detective. It's available now on Amazon and at your local bookstore. Go check it out. Uh, Zach, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Uh, my pleasure. And that was my conversation with Zach Dundas. The Great Detective, The Amazing Rise, and Immortal Life of Sherlock Holmes is available now. And I hope these conversations have encouraged you to go, pick up, and read a Sherlock Holmes story. I don't think you'll be disappointed. I'm Peter Creighton, and thanks for listening. Thank you very much for listening to this WXAV 88.3 FM podcast. Be sure to visit our website, wxav.com, for more information on your escape from ordinary radio.